Yo, have you heard of LinkedIn Learning? If you haven't, LinkedIn Learning is an American massive open online course provider. It provides video courses taught by industry experts in a variety of subjects. Now, why am I sharing this? I'm sharing this because Living Corporate is in partnership with LinkedIn Learning to provide diversity, equity, and inclusion courses. Listen, if you're trying to be a better ally, you want to understand better diversity, equity, inclusion strategies, or you just want to learn how to be a better leader, you got to check out the courses on LinkedIn Learning. So check it out. You can do it one of two ways. You can click the link in the show notes or you go to LinkedIn Learning and you search Living Corporate again. Link in the show notes or go to LinkedIn Learning and search Living Corporate. I'll see you over there. So if there are, you know, 40 white men in that room, right, for every uh, six black women, it's a greater likelihood that a man has an opportunity to amplify the voice and be able to be heard. So that's a really good way, right, to amplify people is you have that um, influence, you have that power, right? You have that position and you can use your voice to amplify the voices of others. The second way to be an ally um, is to support black businesses, buy black books, go to black stores, buy your kids black dolls, um, black uh, books, uh, children's books, black games, um, buy things uh, that are made by black people, right? Um, the other thing that you can do is when it comes to um, supporting, uh, you know, creators, when it comes to supporting networks, when it comes to performing, um, uh, supporting other professionals, you can support by uh, sharing um, posts on social media, liking the posts, but more so commenting, sharing to get re-engagement. So one of the things I want to talk about for a minute is how we have to learn how to use the tools, right? The master's tools to our advantage. We don't have to just use the tools for them to continue to exploit us. So for example, right on LinkedIn, as an example, right? You can, when somebody makes a post, don't just like the post. Even if you put an emoji in the comments it um uh what's the word i want to say um registers as a and it registers as an impression and so we know right that everything is about algorithms right and we know that algorithms are designed to uh make companies as much money as as they can right and so the things that get amplified and the things that get elevated right are the things um that that people are acting actively doing so if you want to amplify jackie's book my voice living corporate when people post you have to share and like and comment and comment when it comes to the content on living corporate you can buy merch right <laughs> um you can also when you see living corporate post something same thing don't just like it share and comment so um, I wanted to make sure I put that out there in the front because if we are really going to try to drive radical change, right? Radical is getting to the root of stuff. So if we're going to be using, right, these technology platforms to try to 
you know, um, forward our, our, our cause, you know, around anti-racism, around, you know, equity, around justice, we have to really do it the right way. And we need to be intentional in terms of the way that we are doing it. So with that, um, make sure that you amplify, share, like, when it comes to these podcasts and things, you need to download, rate, and review. So thank you, everybody. Um, and we're going to kick it off. Hey, Tiffany, thanks so much for joining. So, Jackie, here's where I want to leave off. Just in case there are some people that this will be their first episode hearing you and I talk at all, just give just a, a little bit of background around, you know, you, how the, the series came about. And then... Okay. Hey, let's get into it. All right. Sounds good. Well, before we jump right into that, I just want to piggyback on what you just said. You know, um, so I think um, most of you already know that I am not a professional writer. You know, that this was not my calling. Um, my background was in finance. You know, I'm a numbers cruncher. You know, I am not a writer. And so I'm actually learning a lot of things as I go. You know, I learned how to uh, create a book with my children. Um, but more than that, I'm, I'm learning a lot about social media. And, you know, it's just happenstance that I stumbled across LinkedIn. And so I've been active on LinkedIn now for uh, probably about maybe three or so months. And when I first uh, started trying to network here on LinkedIn, um, you know, it was it was difficult because I didn't really understand, you know, my, I, I'm not a big um, techie person. And so I'm actually learning a lot of, of what I'm doing about how to network in this particular platform. And so uh, when I initially started becoming active, you know, I would post something and I would get maybe, you know, 11 views. And the reason the views were so um, incredibly low is because of what Vonda just said. You know, the few people that did notice my post, you know, they would like it, they would react to it. But without that comment, without putting something in a comment form, whether it's just a heart or a smiley face or, you know, a couple of words, it doesn't amplify the, the post and the message. And so it doesn't get that far reach that it needs. So I quickly started learning, okay, I got to switch up my strategy here. So I tried a couple of other things, which probably annoyed a lot of people. But, you know, I, I'm one of those type of people. I'm going to keep hitting that brick wall until I find a weakness in it. And then I'm going to run right through. So, you know, I was like, okay, I'm not getting the visibility that I need. So let me try something else. So then I learned how to tag people. Then good Lord, I started tagging absolutely everybody. And that increased my uh, message. I started getting more views. I started getting more posts, but I still wasn't getting a significant reach. It wasn't until those people who were reacting to the comments start or to the post started commenting that, wow, the message just spread like wildfire. And all of a sudden, you know, Jackie is a common name and I'm no longer being treated like my name is Stanley. Okay. You know, people are, are starting to resonate with me and starting to see my message. And so, you know, I just want to thank you all for your love, for your support. You know, I, I can tell that every time I, I do an interview, every time I come on and talk, Vonda, um, 
my confidence level gets a little bit higher. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you why that is, um, just to give your audience a little bit of background um, to bring them up to speed. You know, so I mentioned that um, being a writer wasn't my calling. Um, I actually had a lucrative career in higher education. Um, I made six figures. I had a job that I was exceptional at, and I always like to put emphasis on that. I was exceptional at my job. I was good at my job. Paid me six figures, which was enough to not only provide for uh, me, but to provide for my kids because my, my income was essentially, you know, the only income. And it was a job that by any measure should have been a successful career. And, you know, like we talked about in the, the previous uh, interviews, um, the career wasn't, though, because I kept finding myself uh, becoming the repeated victim of, of racism in the workplace. And, you know, not the kind that you see reflected in a lot of the movies and the books and the TV shows that when they focus on racism, they always want to take you back to, you know, the racism from decades ago during a time where, you know, you could easily spot it. You could point at it and say, yep, that's racism. That's not what we're up against it today. And that's what we talked about before. Um, the racism that we're experiencing in the workplace today is not over where you could easily spot it. It's covert. It's hidden. It's harder to prove. And I became a victim of that type of racism. So, you know, fast forward, you know, almost 20 years later, you know, I'm still struggling to build my career because by the fourth and fifth time of getting so far on that ladder of success and then having a racist person who also happens to be in a position of power and influence target you, okay? They have the backing, the power, the influence to pull that rug from under you. So when they do that, you and that ladder that you're on come crashing down. And that's what happened to me, you know, by the fourth and fifth time of having to restart and lose everything, um, I, I battled a lot of demons. Um, I considered both suicide, you know, really seriously considering killing myself, um, but I also considered homicide. And, and, and I just want to be clear about my thoughts of homicide. I wanted to kill my boss. I felt it in the deepest, in the darkest, and in what I call the Saturnine realms of my my Capricorn soul, to put it uh, in a way that uh, I read in a book one day. And I felt it there, um, and I I plotted, I, I I I walked through scenarios. I I really wanted to kill my boss because of what they were doing to me. Um, thankfully, God intervened, though, like I told you last week. And um, through my youngest daughter, I was able to snap out of these homicidal uh, uh, ideations that I was having and, and pull myself together for my children. Because, you know, as a mom, Vonda, you know that, you know, it's one thing if you come after me, okay? But if you come after my children in any way, shape, or form, you've got a problem on your hand. You know, it, 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 something snaps in you and whatever you're dealing with, that goes on the back burner. And now the only thing you see is protecting your babies. 
And that was enough to pull me out of the despair that I was in long enough to come back, help my children, and then find out that, you know, I wasn't going crazy because for the longest time, I honestly thought that there was something about me, that there's something about Jackie that is unlovable, that people just can't um, tolerate, that no one wants to be around, that these companies can't stand. You know, it's it's there's something individually wrong with Jackie. And I, I thought I was going crazy. Um, after my daughters came forward and, and told me that they were experiencing the same thing, and then doing some more reaching out to other family members and then people in the community and, and hearing the, the, the gut-riching stories of so many people. Oh my gosh, it was just overwhelming to me. How many of our people lose their jobs or they, they suffer in silence living in conditions that are are, are absolutely pure hell and, and never, ever having that sense of security, you know, where um, that sense of security that's afforded to a lot of white people. Let me just say it like that. You know, when a, when a white person uh, gets a job, you know, they can see themselves in that job for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years out, right? But as Black people, we are always in a state of hypervigilance, you know, because things start out great. Things are great in the beginning, right? But you never get that sense of security because you know it's only a matter of time before a racist comes along, even if they're not in the organization when you get hired. But eventually one's going to come along in that organization and they're going to notice you because you're good at your job. Okay. And then, you know, um, another thing, Bond, I just noticed you put up the, the quote pet to threat. That is very real too. And, uh, you know, I have personal experience with that because I am good at my job. Okay. And when you walk into a company and you're strong black woman and you're confident and you know your shit. Okay. I'm just going to say it like that. Okay. You're good at your job. You may have a boss who wants to help you grow, who wants to invest in you, who wants to help you, who wants to nurture you and care you and pet you and take care of you. But as soon as you become a threat to what they've got going on, and now you're no longer um, the person, the pet project that they brought in, okay, you're now getting the recognition. You're now getting the credit for your own work. You're now doing everything, and you are now getting the spotlight. Well, now you're a threat. And that same person who started out supporting you, is now helping to derail your career, okay? So fast forward to today, you know, um, after my career was was derailed for the last time, um, I pulled myself out of corporate America. Um, and I'm the type of person that, you know, it's not enough for me to just be okay. I, 
there's something deep inside me that makes me want to help others. And my daughters are the same way, which tells me I raised them right. And so that's where Hush Money came from. Hush Money was a book that we felt was needed because as we realized that so many of our people are dealing with this, we knew that we needed to share what we knew because here's the thing. Can you hold on for a minute? Christian, go away, honey. Fine, go. That's my grandson. I, I have a six-year-old grandson, and you know he knows that I'm doing an interview right now, but he's got an emergency. He wants to play with grandma's phone, and he's not going to let grandma concentrate until I give in and let him play with my phone. So sorry about that. No, don't be sorry. Look, sometimes <laughs> Barley is here barking or whatever. You know, this is what it is. And but I want to, but I want to take a step back for just a bit. Mm-hmm. on the threat to pet and 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 really you know acknowledge you know even people in the chat you know that have gone gone through this right and 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 or or are living it now right one of the reasons that for me is so important right to elevate Jackie's story I mean I've had Cindy Bright on I've had Angel mm-hmm. Henry on you know I'm going to have anybody on that is really bringing you know this this topic to light and talking about it. And I'm sorry, my C's going through it too. So here's the thing, y'all. Here's the thing. The when we don't talk about stuff, right? It not only impacts us, you know, because it's eating us up and, and, and killing us inside, you know, uh migraines, stomach issues, blah, blah, blah. Right. But right. all we doing is letting them get away with it. Right? right. So what we gotta do is we gotta talk about it and bring it to light. Now you know, there are tons of resources out here. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm going to be doing is sharing resources. And I can't think of it right now, but somebody who's really quick and good with the internet will be able to find this one resource. I can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but um, the woman who uh, created it uh, maybe four to six weeks ago, it's a resource that tells you how to actually, um, it walks you through how to handle um, you know, these kind of situations. Like, so if you're on a job right now, right. And you're experiencing these situations, it's a, it's a whole resource like package. So I'm going to help, uh, look for the information and share it with people. But what you have to know, right. Everybody is afraid. And, and I, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about. And that is how this works. Okay. So it works through fear and, 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 I have this thing. I don't like using um, examples from enslaved times, but the, this example is coming to my mind right now. If you think about fear and how fear is um, put on people, right? And things that make people fearful is your well-being and your safety. So if you worried about not having a job to pay your bills, to take care of your family and yourself, that makes fear, right? That is going to create fear. And capitalism is all around fear anyway, right? Fear of not having what other people have, fear of loss and this and that. That stuff goes up to to scarcity, and we'll get to that in a second. But the fear of losing your job, the fear of thinking you're going to get 
uh, you know, ostracized, retaliated against, blackballed. I know people that was afraid to report egregious things that happened at work just because they knew Absolutely. they thought they was going to get black, black, blackballed and that the company was going to keep them from getting jobs everywhere else. All of that stuff, that is fear tactics, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not saying, and you'll hear in Jackie's story and other people's story, and I got books over there and books here with the same stories in there, okay? We have to talk about these things, y'all. Not only do we have to talk about them, we have to continue to talk about them, and we have to encourage and support each other to talk about them. And a thing that allies can do, um, and Joseph, you probably already know that know this, is to believe Black women. If I say I was discriminated at work, that's it. I don't have to give you no long explanation about this and that and why do I think it's racist. I know what's racist. Nobody can tell me something that happens to me, whether it's racist or not. So the first thing is if somebody says, oh, my goodness, you know, this thing happened. You say, I'm sorry that happened. And then maybe it's what can I do to help you or whatever. Right. Or is there anything you need? But that's the first thing. Believe black women. And and the other thing is we got to continue to document these things. Right. So, for example, let's say your company has Slack. And maybe you have some channels that are diversity type channels or, you know, conversation fun channels or whatever. And that's how it works, Tiffany. That That's what they do, right, is they bring people in specifically that are going to support the agenda of the organization. But what you can do, if you have Slack, for example, you can just go in Slack and say, hey, this thing happened. What do you people, what does everybody think about that? You can email your uh, leaders within your company, right? Because you have uh, Outlook or whatever your email system is. You know the email addresses of your CEO, your CIO, your CFO, your chief uh, ethics officer, your Mm -hmm. chief compliance officer. Email these people and say, dear chief compliance officer, I would like to report that this thing happens on this day, on this time. Carbon copy your CEO, the VP of HR, your chief people officer. The board of directors. The board of directors, if you have their email addresses. Because once you report it, they legally have to do something about it, right? So these are things I'm learning from Jackie's book, from these resources, from LinkedIn. So anything I learn, I'm going to bring it to uh, this audience, to this group, to the world, right? Because to make change, y'all... We have to do radical things. And that does create some fear. is some anxiety there. But guess what? You can't accomplish anything if you don't go beyond your comfort zone. And that's, that's not a quote I made up. I got that on a little ashtray thing over there. <laughs> but you can't well, accomplish anything if you don't go out of your comfort zone. So we got to be doing something different, right? And the other thing is with inside these corporations, Joseph, to your point, right, the reason they're watering it down is because they don't want to change. They don't want, who would want somebody like Vonda being a CEO of their company telling a whole bunch of white men what to do? They don't want that, right? They don't want the the the, the best and the brightest because it's, I don't fit that mold, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of us don't fit that mold. We're not part of the fraternity. We want equity for everyone, right? I, I mean, I know people, for an example, that may be in one you know, um, demographic, maybe, you know, a Latina woman 
right? Um, but uh, speaking up maybe for an Indian woman, for example, and then, you know, you can't even speak up for anyone. So right. we can come to speak at AWS. I charge $8,500 an hour um, to do uh, keynote speeches. And, um, you know, me and Jackie can get something figured out, but we would love to come um, Absolutely. And, and talk. Um, Absolutely. But, but this is what it's about. So I'm going to pause it there, but I, you know, wanted to, to, to definitely bring that part of the conversation mm -hmm. to, to life because, you know, it is what it is, but we have to be bold and we have to be courageous because guess what? It's not going to get better if we don't, we, I mean, it's, it's just, it's game time. It's game time and people should be getting tired of you. That's and that, and, and that means you doing it right. So every time you get a hater, every time you get somebody, you know, uh, trying to put you down or saying, why are you talking all this black stuff, all this diversity stuff, whatever, mm -hmm. they make them get tired because that's what it is, right? Yeah. And we can talk about that, what not only what um, covert racism looks like, but mm -hmm. what are those things that companies and people can actually do, right? And I believe it's a one-on-one. -on -one. You got to develop relationships. You have to have connections, right? I've been talking to people in the community here in Portland about that, right? Like that's part of it. But it's okay for people to get tired of you. And I, my thing is this, you know, I think of, I grew up in a, a Baptist church in Philly, right? But mm -hmm. I think about the old spirituals and I remember, no, 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 I'm not tired yet, right? And, right. and, and, and like, I'm not going to be tired until I die. And, and so if that's 50 years, I'm going to be sitting here, gray hair, glasses, talking mm -hmm. about radical change. Yo, it is going to be what it's going to be because we have to keep, doing this because it's a matter of life and death and it's it not is. just life and death for black women it's not just life and death for black people it's life and death for the freaking planet because they with hatred and racism and greed not only killing black people not you know allowing equity and opportunity but letting the planet burn up with climate change right mm -hmm. and letting little babies getting killed at school so look we got a whole lot of work to do but i want to get back to the book so I want to talk, I want to start from Ebony, okay. the end of Ebony's uh, story, or not the end of Ebony's story, but let's, you know, give a little summary about Ebony's story, and then let's go into book two, y'all. Let's get All it. All right. Sounds good. So just real quick before we yeah. dive back into Ebony's story, um, you said something that was really important about resources and, and how some people are afraid to fight. You know, I, I want to tell you that Ebony had those same fears, okay? You know, she's not a superwoman. She's 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 just a woman who was trying to to have a career, a successful career, right? And she had those fears, but there was something that helped her get past her fear, and it was actually something very small, but it was something that was very effective. You know, when when fear would try to take over, when she knows, okay, I, I'm going to have to fight. And, you know, that fear is telling her, no, don't do it. And, you know, people around her are saying, don't do it, don't do it. You know, there was something that she always told herself. She said, if I don't fight for me, who will? And that simple sentence sparked something every time she would tell herself that. If I don't fight for me, who will? And that was enough for her to take a deep breath 
and then go into this this battle, which I liken to, like I said, a, a modern day story of David uh, against a corporate Goliath, right? That's one thing that I wanted to mention. The other thing that I wanted to mention is, is this. I, I think part of the reason my book is spreading around the world, and I mean, when I say that, you guys, it boggles my mind to know how many countries are reading Hush Money because they're experiencing the same things. I mean, I just never would have guessed in a million years, okay? Um, but one of the reasons I think this is spreading and one of the reasons people are contacting me, I mean, oh my gosh, it is just amazing how many people, I just had a, a, a 30 minute conversation uh, with a black woman yesterday whose story just broke my heart. But as she was talking to me, my, my little wheels were turning and I was like, sweetie, you, you've got a strong case. But here's the problem. A lot of people, you know, in our black and brown communities, we have strong cases, but we don't know how to wrap it in a bow and and give it to uh, the attorneys or to to file that ironclad complaint. We've got all this information, but, you know, we're number crunchers like me or we don't have backgrounds in writing. So we don't know how to lay it out. So what makes my what I do a little bit different than what um, people are used to having is, and again, I always preface this by saying I am a proponent of DEI work. DEI is important. There is value there. It needs to continue. And we've got some amazing women doing amazing DEI work. You know, Kim Crowder's one of them, you know, um, Sharon, uh, uh, just so many people are doing uh, amazing DEI and anti-racism work. Okay. Um, why people are contacting me is, is just a little different than the work that people are doing with employers to, to change the culture in uh, the employment uh, sector. Um, I get some of those calls and, and I'm learning as I go. But the calls that really come to me right now are the individual people, the people who are saying, you know, things are so bad at me for work. I'm on FMLA right now. I'm terrified to go back to work. Can you help me? Okay, I get a lot of those calls. And so where what I do is a little different in that. I actually help these people. I look at their documentation. We go through their evidence. We go through their situation. We see at what point they fall in Ebony's story. And then I actually help them write their discrimination complaints. We get it to the right channels. So now the employee has an advocate. The employee has somebody that's helping them get ready for this big battle. Because what I say about attorneys is that an attorney is not going to do the heavy lifting, lifting for you, okay? And they are not miracle workers. They cannot fight a battle for you unless your evidence is tight, right? They're not going to help you write the discrimination complaint. They're not going to review the evidence to, to put it in the right order. They're not going to do all the background work that you need to do in order to either get that settlement, if that's what you're wanting, 
keep your job if that's what you're wanting, do both if that's what you're wanting, or take them to court. And so that's where people are coming to me and they're saying, hey, you know, can you look at my evidence? This is what I've had. Um, I was either wrongfully terminated or I'm still employed. Do you think I have a case? And if you do, can you help me put it into the right order and write my discrimination complaint? And so in addition to writing book two, that's what I do. I, I actually help the, the victims uh, write their discrimination complaints, um, go through their um, their evidence, help them talk about it, you know, help them effectively communicate it. And, uh, and, and that's uh, so rewarding for me. So before we jump into book two, just one other thing. Um, I brought up FMLA, right? Here's the mistake that a lot of our people in our black and brown community make when it comes to FMLA. You work in an environment that is horrific. You are going through racism. You are experiencing racial trauma, right? Things get so bad that you go on medical leave because you're about to snap. Your emotional health, your mental health, your physical health is being impacted negatively by what you're experiencing. So a lot of our people, they go on medical leave. They go on FMLA. But this is where everybody seems to make the same mistake over and over and over and over again. And it just breaks my heart. You know, they go on medical leave thinking that when I step away from the company and I take this break, things are going to calm down at the company. And then when I return, things will be a little bit better. And and I I might just be able to to have a, a fresh start again. And that never happens. And so people, I mean, I mean, just messages, please. The one yesterday just had me to tears. Her message was, I'm not a creep. Please talk to me. I, I need to talk to you. I, I'm, I'm on FMLA. I'm going to be going back to work. I, I, I need to talk to you. And a lot of people go back to work. And then the racism that they were experiencing before they went on FMLA gets worse. Not- Oh, yeah. Not only does it continue, but I mean, it is accelerating. Get worse. Yeah. And I think that's that's and that's the retaliation piece. And that's Mm -hmm. the other piece of the fear. So back to that. Right. See Mm -hmm. how fear is that undercurrent. Right. So it's a fear of reporting, a fear of going back, a fear of fear. So fear. Right. That's that fear is being driven right into our population. Right. Into people. By, for exploitative reasons only. It's only mm-hmm. so companies can make more money because when companies could easily say, here's the rules. If you, these are the, 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 the standards that we have here. If you can't follow them standards, then you out the door, right? Instead of companies doing that, right? Mm-hmm. But it goes into so much more and it, it's so interesting. It goes into so much more, right? Because it really goes into companies are led by people, right? Yes. People, right? come to every situation, right, with their own beliefs, their own attitudes, right, their own perspectives, their own viewpoint. And if 70% of people in leadership positions are white men, Mm -hmm. 70%, right, Mm -hmm. 
they are the ones making the decisions. They're going to hire people who look like them. They talk the same language. They speak the, they, 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 it, so, so that, that is the group, right? That needs to, um, uh, grow and develop in terms of like how they even just understand anything. <laughs> but That's the right. thing is, right. It's, it's a big amount of people, right? Because you're talking about leaders and who is responsible for making decisions and that's not us. Right. And so, you know, um, it, it is heartbreaking. This, this happens consistently. Right. Mm-hmm. If, and, and, and let's talk about this. I mean, let's freaking go there on this here. Right. You have one person that's speaking up, that's really trying to like go hard in on, on everybody else. Like if you're in a company, right. Like what Tiffany's talking about. And then you have those black people that they refuse to even like support you. So it's like, well, these black people are happy. What's wrong with y'all black people over here, right? right? right. And then you get into that whole thing. And those are the people that serving on the DEI committee. Those right. are the people that have the jobs of DNI director, head of this and that, blah, 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 right? Because they're being put in those positions to keep the status quo. It's just like Clarence Thomas was put on the Supreme Court to keep the status quo, right? Clarence Thomas was never going to be no... John Lewis, that was never going to happen. Right. So, so those people are put in those positions, right. Right. To keep that status quo going. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. You hit the nail on the head. So if there's anyone that is currently on FMLA, okay, do not, and this is my strong warning to you, do not return to your employer before you put a wall of protection between you and that company. Because when you return to work, the racism is going to pick back up, it's going to be accelerated, and it's going to happen quickly that you find yourself out of your job. So my book teaches you how to put that wall of protection up, and and essentially it shows you how to write that discrimination complaint. So um, if anybody is currently dealing with that and you just need some help how to put that wall of protection up, you know, definitely DM me and, and let's talk and see um, how we can do that so that you don't walk back into a, a volatile situation. So now um, we brought up uh, book two and I'm so excited that uh, book two is going to be uh, released at the end of this month. And it literally picks right back up with uh, where Ebony left off to tell the rest of her a compelling story because her story was so um, just so riveting that it couldn't be fit into one book. So we had to divide it up into two books. Um, I do warn you that um, what I'm going to read is a spoiler. So if you haven't read my first book, uh, Hush Money, How One Woman Proved Systemic Racism in Her Workplace and Kept Her Job. It's a gold medal winner. Um, It's featured in Forbes, which is also something uh, that recently happened that was super exciting, um, where Forbes did a feature story uh, to amplify our voice, which was just spectacular. I mean, just spectacular. Um, But it's also uh, an international best-selling book. Um, So if you haven't read Hush Money, um, I encourage you to do so, but you might want to also drop off of the um, call now 
or mute us because um, what I'm going to read is basically going to give away the ending of book one because it literally picks right back up uh, where book one left off. So you you won't be able, Tiffany, you won't be able to buy book two until I uh, release it. And it's not going to be released until my birthday, which is New Year's Eve. Um, so on New Year's Eve, late at night, I'm going to turn on the button. So please, um, if you're looking for book two, you know, just continue to follow me on LinkedIn or follow me on um Amazon, or if you want to purchase uh, autographed books directly from me, um, you can do that. A lot of people are actually pre-ordering book two directly from me and getting that autographed book. So um, Vonda, you know, I will send you, let's see, you know, a lot of people don't like doing business with Amazon and I, I, I feel you and I get that. Right. Um, and I, and I, and that's why I reached out to Jackie. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm telling everybody this, right. And, and, you know, do it for all. This is back again, right. How do you, the way to be an ally, this is it. You buy books directly from people. I, I, um, even, I, I found a black woman vendor that I order books from. Um, so if people don't have them directly, but buy the books directly from the author themselves. Jeff Bezos don't need another $2.99, $3.99, $4.99 because he still got his workers peeing and shitting in cups, okay? So I don't give right. him a dollar unless I have to. So um, let's do that. But I want um, to get into it. So um, if you haven't already read Hush Money 1, you might want to uh, either go on mute or, um, you know, or, or drop off because it's going to be a spoiler. I read, I read it. So I am ready. Okay. <laughs> Let me just want to also this. make sure that we put all of this um, in the notes for the show too. That way, um, Jackie, people will be able to get you directly too. Okay, that sounds great. So I'm just, I've listed the information for uh, buying book two, an autographed copy. I will write a personalized uh, message of, of hope and love to you. Um, it's $25. Here are the methods of payment. Um, after you make your payment, so after making your payment, please email hushmoneyseries at gmail.com with your mailing address. Okay, and then that way you'll have the book and it'll be beautiful and um, I think you'll enjoy it. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and pull up chapter one and we're going to dive into uh, book two. So just a, a little bit of background here. In book one, you got to meet Ebony. And when you were introduced to Ebony, you know, you got to meet Ebony as an adult. Um, you know, she's living in poverty with her sick mother. She's struggling financially. Um, she's having a hard time uh, making ends meet. But you really don't know much about Ebony's childhood. Um, you, and there were a lot of questions that people had at the end of book one, you know, some people were left with more questions than they had answers uh, when book uh, one ended. You know, questions like, you know, why was Ebony's mom a single parent? And um, when Ebony got her settlement, what did she do with it? Did Ebony's mother die? You know, 
Um, where's Ebony's father in all of this? You know, we know Ebony was divorced and she was um, in a safe house for abused women. But, you know, did she find love again? You know, so there were lots of questions. What about her sister, Gabrielle? Where is she now? Um, what about LaToya? What happened to her? How much did LaToya get on her settlement? So there's lots of questions that people had. And, and you know, some people were funny. Oh, they were funny. I was getting videos of men. Okay, uh, there's one man that sent me a video and he was just shaking his head. He was a black man. And he said, Jackie, you left me hanging. And, you know, I enjoyed your book. But um, yeah, I'm a little upset because I need to know what happened to the mom. <laughs> so so book two answers all of that. And it just goes into much more detail about Ebony. So I'm going to read to you now. And we're going to read chapter one from uh, book two, which is called Hush Money, The Cost of Being Black in Corporate America. And chapter one is called A Better Life for Mom. Okay, so um, for those of you that have read book one, you know how important Ebony's mom is to her. So here we go. Have you ever felt so happy you thought you would burst or so excited you could barely contain yourself? I have. It was August 14th, 2017. The day I signed the settlement agreement with my employer, Daybrun Career Institute, and reality set in that in 14 days, I was going to receive a check for $200,000 to settle the racial discrimination complaint I had filed with the state of Texas, compensate me for the emotional distress I suffered during my last five years of employment, and by my silence. $200,000 tax-free. That's more money than I made in the last three years combined. And words cannot describe how great it felt two days later when I drove away from that hellhole, the Temple campus, where I worked with my personal belongings in my trunk and thought about the huge financial blessing God was sending my way. That's a lot of moolah. I thought to myself as I gave the car a little gas and merged onto the highway to begin my commute back to my hometown of Austin, Texas, what on earth am I going to do with all that money? No sooner had I asked myself the question than I already knew the answer. The first and foremost thing I was going to do was give mom the life she always deserved but never had. Mom, the woman who adopted me when I was born and loved me unconditionally my entire life. The woman whose life was infinitely more precious to me than my own. The woman who was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer at the tender age of 56 and given one to two months to live by her doctor almost two weeks ago. Mom was the most beautiful woman in the world to me, with a taller than average height. And before she was diagnosed with colon cancer, she had a slender physique, caramel-colored skin as smooth as silk, glistening green eyes, and long, shiny black hair. But months of chemo took a terrible toll on Mom, and now she was a shadow of her former self with a thin physique, toffee-colored skin as dry as desert sand, glassy green eyes and almost no hair. But even so, mom was still the most beautiful woman in the world to me 
and living without her was simply not an option. Mom never had a chance to live the American dream, not even when she was married to my adoptive father, King Marcus, a man who wasn't a king, but who made me call him that anyway. King Marcus was a giant among mortal men. He was a handsome, high yellow man with brown, clean-cut hair, hazel eyes, a boyish face, and a dazzling smile that melted mom's insides. He was so popular in our community that men wanted to be him and women wanted to have him. But me, I feared him because beneath his suave, handsome, and debonair exterior was a monster who had a love of rum and a violent streak usually ignited by the rum that he regularly took out on mom. I couldn't have imagined in a million years back then that I would grow up and marry someone who was exactly the same. My memories of King Marcus are spotty at best, but there is one thing I remember very well. You sure are ugly. He often said to me when mom wasn't around with a smile on his face and a glass of rum in his hand. On my fifth birthday, I decided to ask mom the burning question that had been on my mind for far too long as she watched me coloring in my new coloring book. Did my other mama not want me because I'm ugly? Mom gasped. Absolutely not. Your other mama thought you were as beautiful as I do, but she was sick and couldn't take care of you. I stopped coloring to examine the orange crown in my hand as the wheels in my head began to turn. Would I be prettier if I was orange like you and Gabby? Gabrielle, my older sister by five years, was the biological daughter of King Marcus and mom. And at age 10, she was mom's pre-cancer mini-me with sun-kissed skin, long jet black hair, and mint green eyes. Mom ran both hands through her silky hair to push it back. Then she picked me up, put me on her lap, and moved a couple of my long box braids away from my face. Do you know why I named you Ebony? She asked, looking deep into my brown eyes while caressing my cheek. No, ma'am. I named you Ebony to highlight the beauty I see in you and your beautiful dark skin. Mom's words were encouraging, but it was her gentle touch that comforted me the most as I looked into her beautiful green eyes and my cheek melted into the palm of her soft hand. Mommy said I'm beautiful, I thought to myself as I beamed with pride on the inside. And from that moment, I knew it was true no matter what the monster said. Another thing I remember about King Marcus is that he was a good provider for our family, despite his obvious flaws and the monster lurking inside him. And because of the income he earned working construction in the hotter months, and as a garbage man during the colder months, our family lived quite well and was considered by many to be in Shreveport, Louisiana's upper class of poverty. We had a big mint green house with four bedrooms, a reliable car that looked great and ran great too, an abundance of food on the table to eat, and even a television set in the living room. Our lives drastically changed though, when King Marcus abandoned us when I was just six years old. 
After that, it seemed like mom was always hustling to keep us afloat. Don't get me wrong, mom worked. She worked very hard as a waitress at the local pancake house. But she made less than minimum wage, $3.83 an hour plus tips, and that just wasn't enough. So she hustled to make up the difference between what we had and what we needed and downgraded our quality of life to reduce expenses. For starters, we moved out of our big mint green house with four bedrooms into a small pink house near the railroad track that had three bedrooms and was infested with roaches. So many roaches and they were everywhere. Here roach, there roach, everywhere a roach roach. And for some reason, they loved Gabrielle's room, even though she kept it clean as a whistle. And we were convinced it was because they thought she was their leader. King Marcus took our reliable car when he left and our dignity and pride too. So mom bought a new one, a red and brown station wagon that leaked green radiator fluid and had so many rust spots and dents that people in our neighborhood said our car had cellulite. And as if losing our big home, reliable car, and dignity weren't bad enough, things were bad food-wise too. And for the first six months after King Marcus left, there just wasn't enough to eat. So Gabrielle and I regularly hopped our neighbor's fence when no one was home and helped ourselves to the green apples hanging on a tree in their backyard, which we eagerly brought home to share with mom, and the dog biscuits they kept in a milk delivery box on the front porch. Things got better after that, though, and there was plenty on the table to eat between the food we got from the church pantry, the crawdads and catfish mom caught at the lake on the weekends, the mystery meat that showed up in our kitchen sink every so often with its teeth, fur, and claws still intact that mom swore was beef, but I realized years later was a possum, and the food stamps the dreaded rainbow color food stamps that might as well have been, been a big neon sign saying, look at us, we're poor, as we stood in line at the grocery store checkout counter. Mom sacrificed so much to take care of Gabrielle and me when it would have been much easier to abandon us like King Marcus did. She worked hard year after year with no thought for herself and with no child support. She went to work on days when her body was so crippled with pain she could barely move. And when the station wagon broke down, which it often did, she walked five miles to and from work, sometimes in blistering heat or torrential rainstorms, then soaked her swollen feet in Epsom salt to ease the pain so she could do it again the next day. And on days when food was scarce, she went without eating so me and Gabrielle could eat. If there was anyone who deserved to live a better life, it was mom. And I was willing to use every penny of my settlement money to make sure she did. I made it back to Austin around 4 p.m. and went straight to mom's apartment. But as I reached for the door, the hospice nurse visiting mom opened it and walked out saying goodbye to me in passing. As you may recall, mom had terminal cancer. And we decided to do in-home hospice instead of hospice in an agency so she could be around her surroundings and loved ones as often as possible. I walked in and saw mom sitting on the couch watching TV 
with the tube from the portable, portable oxygen tank in her nose and Aiden, my eight-year-old son, sitting next to her. Aiden was the miracle baby I thought I'd never have after three miscarriages and a bad marriage and grew to be the cutest little boy I ever saw with peanut-colored skin, curly brown hair, and round hazel eyes. Mommy! He yelled as he ran over and nearly knocked me down. Can I play with your phone? Before I could answer, my little Houdini had reached into my purse, grabbed my phone, and was already playing a video game as he blindly walked back to the couch where mom was adjusting the black wig she was wearing with her gloved hands. Mom started wearing gloves about three weeks ago because she developed something called peripheral neuropathy in her hands that was particularly painful when her bare skin was touched. Aiden was grandma's good little boy, she said with a warm smile as I walked over and sat down next to her. Gabrielle chuckled from the love seat on the opposite side of the couch. That's cause we'll let him play in the kitchen sink all day. Gabrielle, who was now 38 years old, was the spitting image of precancer mom in looks and in height. At six feet tall, she towered over my five foot four self and still had sun-kissed skin, long jet black hair, and mint green eyes. But now she also had a figure that wouldn't quit, legs for miles, and a walk that could literally stop traffic. Mom giggled at Gabrielle's remark as I walked over to the couch, kissed her on the cheek, and sat down next to her. I'm free, I exclaimed with the biggest smile on my face. Mom pumped her gloved fist in the air as the loose skin on her arms jiggled. You did it. I'm so proud of you, honey. God is good. I carefully wrapped my arm around her frail body and leaned my head on her shoulder. Thanks, Mom. I couldn't have done it without you. Gabrielle loudly cleared her throat, drawing attention to herself and causing me and Mom to laugh. And of course, I couldn't have done it without you either, silly, I said to a giggling Gabrielle as she brushed her long hair. We're two peas in a pod, a messed up, broke down, jacked up pod, but still a pod. We all had a good laugh. Then I asked mom the burning question that had been on my mind since the day I signed the settlement agreement. If we were rich instead of poor growing up, what would our lives have looked like? Ebony, I know what you're thinking. You need to be smart and not blow all that money. Come on, mom, I gently protested. We've been careful with money our whole lives because we didn't have any. And I'm on vacation, paid vacation, for the next four weeks. Can't we enjoy ourselves just once? Hell yeah, Gabrielle blurted out before mom could respond. Language, Gabby, mom warned. The room went silent. And as mom sat quietly on the couch thinking, Gabrielle and I sat on pins and needles awaiting her response. A few minutes later, mom turned to me and her tired eyes lit up like a Christmas tree in the dark. Okay, mom smiled as she nodded her head. Gabrielle jumped up and did a happy dance as I clapped with glee. Yes, I shouted. Okay, so back to my question, mom. What would our lives have been like if we weren't poor? Mom's eyes sparkled as she considered the possibilities and displayed a childlike sense of wonder. 
And for the first time in her adult life, she let her guard down, stopped worrying about anything and everything, and dared to dream. I suppose if we had money all those years ago, we never would have left Shreveport, our home. That's my greatest regret, you know. Moving us here, isolated from my family and friends, trying to find a better life for us that I never found. For the next hour, I was covered in goosebumps as I listened to mom sharing her deepest and innermost thoughts about the life she always wanted for us, the big house we would have lived in, the dinner parties full of Creole food we would have hosted, the constant stream of love we would have received from family and friends. I listened intently, silently thanking God for using me as the instrument to bless mom and focusing on each word she spoke like a laser beam as I committed every detail to memory. Afterwards, Aiden and I went home where I warmed up leftovers for dinner and demanded Aiden's stinky butt take a bath before I tucked him into bed. Under normal conditions, I would have showered and gone to bed too, but I was wide awake, too worried to sleep. There's no way I can wait 14 days for my money. Mom may not have that long. I went to my room, sat down on my desk, and worried myself sick thinking about the possibility of mom dying before I got my money and she had a chance to live. Suddenly, I had an illuminating thought that gave me hope as I remembered a commercial I heard on the radio one day about a company that pays lump sums of cash to people who are expecting settlements but want their money now. Excited, I turned on my laptop and did an online search, found a financial services company with good reviews and a good rating, and eagerly completed the online application. The next morning, as I was cooking oatmeal in my pink plushy bathrobe, the phone rang. This is Betty with emergency financial services, a woman said with a scratchy voice. Is this Ebony Ardoin? Yes, it is. We received your application for purchase of your pending settlement, and I think we can help. I just need to ask you a few questions. Over the next 30 minutes, I provided Betty with detailed information about me, the settlement I was expecting from Daybrun, mom's terminal cancer diagnosis and life expectancy, and contact information for my attorney and mom's doctor. Once we obtain the required documentation and verify things, I'll email you the purchase agreement to sign. How long will it take for me to get my money after I sign the agreement? About two days. Great, thank you. The next day, I received the purchase agreement from Betty via email, stating that emergency would purchase my pending settlement of $200,000 for a 15% transaction fee of $30,000. It also stated that the remaining amount would be issued to me in a lump sum payment via direct deposit into my bank account. As you can imagine, I was beyond thrilled and immediately printed the agreement signed it in front of a notary as instructed, and overnighted it back to Betty, confident in the knowledge that within two days, I would have the money I needed to make mom's better life a reality. Or so I thought. And that's the end of chapter one. Well, okay. So like out my heart, like I'm like, whew, okay. 
So you get a sense so, with chapter one of, of Ebony's history, you know, her childhood, mm-hmm. you know, why her father is missing in action, you know, the jerk that he was, you know, the struggles that they had financially. Um, you get you get to see all of that that you didn't get to see in book one. Wow. Well, I mean, I just got to say, Tiffany, Joseph. It's so good. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. I'm going to just leave it at that. Um, But this was an amazing conversation. We're going to keep it going. Um, We're going to, um, you know, Jackie and I have decided we're going to cook something up um, and and y'all going to see more uh, very soon. I just have to say thank you, everybody, for joining live. Um, And, uh, you know, go out and get Hush Money. Book one is already out. Book two is coming out. Um, on New Year's Thanks. Eve, and so um, looking forward to it. So Thanks take care, everybody. Jessica. Right, and thanks so much for um, you know uh, tuning in to the group chat, Radical Change, and I will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Thanks Bye. again, Jackie. Thank you.